helps us that you turn mourning into dancing. And this day that seems so sad and so dark has actually been the brightest day on the calendar of all humanity. Lord, you have told us in your word that if you be lifted up, that you would draw all men unto yourself. And that's the attraction of the cross. It's the ultimate expression of the love of God to sinful man. And Lord, it was yet while we were still sinners that you died for the ungodly. And so, Lord, we come to this place to celebrate that even while we were in a sinful state, that you died on the cross for us. You bore our sin. And it's because of that, Father, that we have been set free. And now, today, we can be called children of God. And so, Lord, we gathered here in this place tonight as family and just pray, God, that you would bless us as we do, that you would speak to us and guide us through your word tonight, that once again we would remember and also rejoice, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell him what a good Friday it is. Good Friday. Happy Good Friday. Merry Good Friday. Very Good Friday. Hey, Glenn. Well, happy Good Friday to you. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. I'm going to read from verse 7 through to 20. And what we're going to look at tonight is we're going to look at the Seder meal, the Seder meal or the Passover meal. And we're going to look how, well, look what the Jew was looking forward to, what he was expecting. Look at how Christ fulfilled it, even as Christ celebrated it. And look how there's still elements of it to be fulfilled. In Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 20, we call this one the Last Supper. It was really the last time that the Seder was truly celebrated, the first time that the communion meal was celebrated. In verse 7 of Luke chapter 22, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you enter the city, this would be Jerusalem, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourself. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And so what I want to start out with is considering verses 12 and 13. When he will show you a large furnished upper room, there make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. 
There's first thing, when a family, a Jewish family, was going to celebrate the Passover, there would be the preparation. Now, you guys are tremendously blessed here tonight because this is a picture taken from this actual account of the Last Supper. Not really, but you get the idea. There there was preparation that was necessary. Now, in preparation for the celebration of the Passover meal, all the leaven would need to be removed from the room desirable from the home because the idea of leaven, leaven is the influence of sin. And this is a celebration of God and who God is, what God has done, and what God was going to do in the future. And so that mindset, we want the presence of God amongst us, and so we have to make sure that there's purity in this place. Next, the room would be cleansed, and the utensils of the dinnerware would be scalded and scrubbed. There would be nothing left unclean, because again, this was a very holy day to the Jewish mind. The furnishings would be fit for a family that is about to celebrate about a six-hour celebration. This would take up the majority of the evening, even into the night. The leader of the household, he would be seated at the table. The youngest member of the house would be seated to his, his right hand. That's where we see the Apostle John seated at the right hand. It's why we believe the Apostle John was the youngest of the apostles. Now, to his left hand, it's traditional that that place would be left empty. And the, the mindset of that would be, just in case, just in case this is the year, this is the time, and we're the family, that Elijah shows up. We'll get into that a little bit more later on. And so, all the food has been prepared, the table is set, and the family is all gathered around. And so the first thing after all of that has taken place would be the lighting of the candle. Now this would be the job of the mother of the home. She would start the supper with this lighting of the Passover candle. And it's symbolic of the Lord and how the Lord is light of the world. And how we are to be lights. Well, the Jews, they were to be lights to the Gentiles. But we know we are to be lights reflecting the glory of God to all of this lost world. And so there's a reminder here. Now, the mother, as she would light the candle, would also, she would state this Hebrew blessing. Blessed are thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has set us apart by his word and whose name we light the festival of lights. And again, this idea is, is to be a witness to their future generations that they would remember going back to when the Passover was originally celebrated, when God, through a mighty hand, delivered his people from the bondage of the world. And so Christ came, and Christ came in fulfillment of this, and as one day he was in the temple area, not the Passover celebration, but the celebration of the uh, of the booths, the festival of the Feast of Booths, there was the lighting of the menorah. There was a giant menorah that was in the temple. And as, as this was being lit, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so the idea, as they are celebrating this Passover, it is to be a witness to what God has planned for them. Now, throughout the ages, it was about the coming of Messiah. Unfortunately, Messiah had come. But even in our hearts today, as we look at this this meal, we're reminded that even as Messiah has come, Messiah is going to come again. 
He's going to come again in judgment of the world, and his judgment will be pure. And he will shine a light as no other light before could be shown, where all sin and the thoughts and the intents of mankind are going to be revealed. And as we are reminded of this, we're reminded that we have become lights of the Lord that we are witnesses of Jesus Christ, that mankind can avoid that future judgment through submission to the Lord Jesus Christ even today. As Christ hung upon that cross, as I said in my prayer, it was the expression of the love that God had towards mankind, that although his son would perish, that all who would believe in him, that they would have eternal life. So, after the lighting of that candle and that speaking of the blessing, would be the first cup of wine. There would be four cups of wine taken during the meal as a symbol of joy and the redemption that we have from the Lord. The four cups come from the four promises that we see in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. It says, Therefore, and this is God speaking to Moses, Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. Now, when he says Lord, again, that word is all in uppercase. It's the tetragrammatron Yahweh. I am the God who is. As we see the plagues, the plagues were directed towards the Egyptian God so that all of mankind would know that the God of Israel is the God who truly exists. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will, now these are direct promises from God. It's why the celebration of this, of this cup. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Now, the, the symbolic presence of wine is the joy that we have in the Lord. And more specific, the joy that we have in the promises of God. And, and it's even this last promise that really grasped my heart. I mean, God's saying what he's going to do. I'll bring you out. I will rescue you and I will redeem you. But he brings it further than that. And that he is a personal God. He's your personal God. Because you, you can't just look at it as he was hung upon the cross for all of humanity, which he was. But he was specifically hung on the cross for you for you. Yeah, for our sins, there's no doubt about it, but for the purpose that God would be able to have eternal fellowship with you. You were unable to do anything for the situation that you found yourself in, your sinful state. But God, because of his richness and grace and his mercy, he met us in a very profound way. I was just talking to somebody about a little bit, a little part of my testimony, at least a part of it that I remember in my life, and I remember the people that invited me to hear the gospel. And, and there, I remember this one time a friend of mine invited me down to Costa Mesa, didn't tell me we were going to a church, they just told me we were going to go see a movie, but we saw an end times movie and there was some guy, this was in 75, some guy with long hair and a beard up there, I thought it kind of looked cool, but nonetheless I heard the message and I was convicted by the message. I, was see, I saw myself as a sinner, and it wasn't a pretty picture. Was I ready to give my life to Christ? No. It was something I knew I needed to do, but as of that moment, it just was not my time. But I do know that God never gave up on me, because this promise, I can look back and see how it applies to me. I will take you as mine. God, God, God gave me that promise, and although I didn't realize it at the time, I will take you as mine. 
because I am now his. I, I see the, the reality of that. But it's not just, I will take you as mine, but also, I will be your God. I just wrote a devotion on, on, on Joshua 24. And, and here God has done some amazing things with the children of Israel. He's delivered them from Egyptian bondage, as we just talked about, but he's brought them into the promised land. He, he's enabled them to achieve these great victories over people who are stronger and mightier than they were. He's given them cities that they didn't build. He's given them vineyards that they didn't plant. And there they are, they're feasting off the goodness of God. And Joshua says, put away the gods from among you. And it's beyond me, but they still have false gods. And we need to conduct ourselves in a manner of children who've been set free. And we need to examine our lives. Is there anything in our life that has come between us and this promise that God has given that is symbolized through this, this cup of wine, this first cup of wine? I will take you as my people. What kind of person am I? Am I still harboring that which comes in between me and a relationship with my God? Because he says, not only am I going to take you as my people, I'm going to be your God. I am going to watch over you. I am going to keep you, and I am going to use you. Never fail to see the honor and the privilege that we have of that. We have taken the name of the Lord upon ourselves and that we call ourselves Christians. And I need to conduct myself as such, that I would not, that we would not take the name of the Lord our God in vain, that we would not take that name upon ourselves for no purpose, but understand this great work that God has done. And so the father, the father would then pour the first cup of wine and ask everybody to stand. He would then lift his cup and recite the Kaddush. This is a prayer of sanctification. It goes like this. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who created the fruit of the vine. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who has chosen us for your service from among the nations. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has kept us in life, who has preserved us and enabled us to reach this season. And the Jews, and and probably have done and maybe even do, we can so take these things for granted. But even as he's speaking those words, Lord God of the universe, the Lord God of the universe, he thinks of you. He thinks of us. And even tonight as we're having this celebration of this Friday that was so good, the goodness of God was displayed to all of humanity upon that cross, far be it from us that we would take it for granted. As we're about next half hour or so to partake of this communion meal, that we wouldn't take a partake of it as we have so many others just doing it because it's time to do it. Just doing it and think that there's some kind of spiritual reality of just eating something because we're eating it or drinking it because we're drinking it, but truly lend our heart into this equation that this would truly be an opportunity of worship and the realization and recognizing of what God has done. And I guarantee you, if you open your heart to that, God is going to fill it even tonight with his glory. I guarantee you that the Lord will do that. It's what the desire of the Lord is. And what the desire of the Lord is, it it comes to pass. Now, here we see in Luke chapter 22, verse 17, this first cup, it says, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst yourself. And so the Lord would follow through. And again, wine in the scriptures is symbolic of joy. And the joy is the acknowledgement of God as our God. 
And so our joy, our joy definitely should be full. After this first cup of wine would become, or would come, the washing of the hands. The washing of the hands is, is a symbolic act of purification as they were preparing to handle the food. Now, what we see it as is it's an application of the word that cleanses us from the filthiness of the world. That we would stay rooted and grounded in the word of God because, well, that's where this Passover comes from. It's the word of God as it's gone from faith to faith throughout the ages. And as they were celebrating it there on that day with the Lord, here it is. Now, the apostles could not have understood the ramifications of it, but here it is, the fulfillment of it all, even right before our eyes. And it's how we are able to join in with them and celebrate it as well. It's through the Word of God and the power of the Word of God that we can recognize the glory of God that was contained even in that meal. Now, more than likely, during the meal, if you'll turn over to the right a couple of pages to John chapter 13, more than likely, this symbolic washing, it was probably around this time that the Lord washed the feet of the disciples. He took it a little bit further because he had some lessons to teach them. He was desiring to teach them the servants that they were to be and how his suffering would make them clean as well. In John chapter 13, verse, verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, I'm sure they had the typical hand-washing because they were big on tradition. And more than likely, this occurred because of this, but after the meal. But nonetheless, there is that mindset of this water and how it washes us clean from that which soils ourselves before the Lord. And it's why we are encouraged to spend time in His Word. It's why we are encouraged to do devotions, our personal reading time with the Lord, because he's been devoted to us that we in turn would be devoted to him. It's why we gather together under his word from Bible study, from Bible study to Bible study, because it's that which washes us clean. As we come on a Sunday morning and we're cleansed by the word of God and prepared for the week. The midweek as we're cleansed and prepared for the remainder of the week. Every day in the morning as we get up that we're cleansed. Or maybe before we go to bed that we're cleansed. This is surely as we shower that we would be showered by God's word for his glory. After that would be the green vegetable and the middle matzah. The green vegetable or the bitter herbs. Well, the green vegetable, it was dipped into salt water and it was eaten. The vegetable, it's a reminder that Passover occurs in the springtime. This was to be the beginning of the Jewish year that their whole lives and their whole being was to be centered around the Lord Jesus, well, what God has done in their life. The salt water was a reminder of the tears of affliction the burden and the rigor suffered in Egypt during their time of captivity, that they were never to forget where they had come from. Now, we're not to dwell where we came from. We're not to dwell in the sinners that we used to be and the sin that we used to partake in, but we can never forget that we were there, that we were lost and we were separated from our God, and God did a mighty work in releasing us from that. If you read the first chapter of Exodus, you see that the Jews were in a situation that was desperate and they were pleading with God and God heard their prayer. 
And even as we see this celebration of the vegetable and again, the reminder of the Passover and the deliverance, but also the tears of affliction, that we would be reminded one day Christ is coming back for his church. That we would be reminded that the sufferings of this day are just a temporary thing. And there is a greater glory that we all have to look forward to. We see the things that are going on all over this world and it's undeniable that how they are lining up with scriptures and how they are moving to that day of the coming of the Lord. Again, I would be foolish to try and guess when he is coming back. He could come back just shortly after we even celebrate the communion meal, even before it. Or it could be another 100, could be another 200 years, and he would line up perfectly with his word. But nonetheless, our heart should yearn within us, being mindful of the tears, being mindful of the deliverance, being mindful of all that God has done and this glorious future that we have for us. That, that, that yeah, the, the, the past, the past that we were so lost, but now we've been found. We've been found and God has drawn us near. And then there's the middle matzah. The middle matzah, I don't know, by the way, if it was uh, gluten or gluten-free. I, I don't know that. But I do know it was without leaven. By the way, our matzah for our communion meal is gluten-free. It's where we're at today. The middle matzah would be broken in two down the middle. It would be broken in half. One half would be kept, and they would eat it shortly. The other half would be wrapped in a linen napkin, and it would be hidden somewhere in the house for later on, and we'll look at that in a little bit later. So after the green vegetable and the middle matzah, next would be the time for the four questions. Four questions. At some point, the elder would nod to the youngest, the one who is seated upon his right, and tell him it is time for the four traditional Passover questions. Now, these questions are in response to what the Jew was told in Exodus 12, verse 26. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? And so the questions, they developed over time through tradition, but traditionally they are as follows. The question would be asked by the youngest, why is this night different? How does it differ from all other nights? All other nights we eat either leavened or unleavened bread, but on this night only unleavened bread. On all other nights we eat all kinds of herbs, but on this night only bitter herbs. On all other nights we do not dip even once, but on this night we dip twice. On all other nights we eat either sitting or reclining, but on this night we eat reclining. This would be the reason that the apostles would ask the apostle John to ask the Lord a question. Remember, the apostle John is seated at him on his right hand. Now, they were reclining, and it was common for them to recline on their left arm, and they would eat with their right hand. And so you've got a pretty rich picture here. You've got Jesus leaning on his left, and you've got the Apostle John leaning on his left, and we're told that John had his head upon the Lord's chest. And John could just sit there so easily and just look up into the eyes of the Lord, probably asked him these traditional questions. But if you look, if you're still in John chapter 13, look at verses 21 through 25. It said, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, most surely I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke. 
Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. I would imagine if you're sitting at a meal with the Lord and you're laying beside of him and you have your head upon his chest and as you turn and you look into his eyes, you have to be of the mindset, how could he possibly love anybody more than he loves me? And again, the Apostle John was the only one of the apostles who were at the cross of Christ. He looked up into the eyes of love. That's why John, in the only place that he is described, he describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved, is because he saw those eyes of love and it became real within his life. Just as surely as the day of your salvation, you should have looked into the eyes of God and realized that his full attention was towards you for the purpose of your salvation. Anyway, back to the meal here, verse 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to them to ask who it was of whom he spoke. And so John would be asking the questions and they have one more question to be asked. It sounds like Peter, apart from the Lord, go ahead, go ahead and, and ask him which one. Verse 25, then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And so you see how this supper is filling just perfectly in with the traditions that went on during the time. Now, we, we, we do dine with the Lord. We, we have that fellowship. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and whoever opens and, and invites me in, to him I will come and, and I will dine with him. And so we have that fellowship with the Lord that when I ask, a question is answered. And what I mean by that is I have that opportunity for prayer. I have that pr- opportunity to seek the Lord out and, and, and to speak to the Lord and have that conversation. And just as John was having intimate fellowship with the Christ, you can have that same intimate fellowship as well. And, and that being the case, the question needs to be asked, do you have that intimate fellowship? Just as John, again, again, turn and look into his eyes, you can have fellowship to that same degree. Just as you're there, and let's just, you can have it anywhere, it doesn't matter, you can have it now in this room, but just that's time. Maybe later on tonight, when you're alone, when it's dark, just turn to the Lord and look into the eyes of the Lord and just speak to the Lord. And I guarantee you, he'll speak back to you, maybe not an audible voice, but he will speak to you. He'll guide you and direct you because he is a personal God. And then you'll come away knowing, hey, you, John, I'm the one whom Jesus loves. You should. It's not an arrogant thing. You should have that mindset. You should have that attitude because the, the, the love of God is vast. The love of God is enough for us all. There, there's the love that is there that has been lavished upon us all. Sixthly, at this time, the second cup of wine would be poured. This is in response to the four questions. The leader would then recount the Passover story. Remember the questions? What does all of this mean? Well, he would go into detail, and he would start at the beginning of the Jewish race with Abraham through to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And he spoke of the ten plagues. As he would speak of the ten plagues, a little bit of the wine would be poured out each time, symbolizing the absence of joy and the reality, this time, of the sufferings of the Egyptians. Before they would drink the remainder of the second cup, the Hallel would be recited. 
The Hallel is Psalm 113 through Psalm 114. Usually at this time, just the first half. And so I'm just going to read the first two. I'm going to read Psalm 113 and 114. We know that as the Lord was seated there at this meal, they sang this, the, the Psalms. They, they sang this Hallel. The, the Bible that you have in your lap, those words in your lap, are the same words that the Lord had at that time, and it's the same words that were sang in that room. I'll read them. I will not sing them tonight. Psalm 113, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from the time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun till its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all the nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, who humbles Himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heaps, that He may seat Him with princes, with the princes of His people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. And then Psalm 114, when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams and little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back. O mountains, that you skipped like rams. O little hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water and the flint into a fountain of waters. So once again, this was recited or sang either way at the Passover time, and as the Lord celebrated it, it was being sung at this time as well. And so you can see how wine, as it symbolizes joy, and as this Hallel was being recited, there would be that joy in who God is and all that God has done. Next after that would be the dipping matzah. And you can, if you turn to Psalm, go ahead and turn back to John chapter 13. Would be the dipping matzah. There would be a second washing of the hands, again, a ceremonial cleansing. And then the remainder of the middle matzah would be the one that's not hidden, would be broken into pieces and given to each person. And there would be matzah that was added to it as well. The matzah would be taken, and it is called the sandwich, and so it was either dipped or it was made into kind of a sandwich. There was a paste of horseradish and applesauce or crushed apples that was mixed together, and it would either be put in this matzah kind of like a burrito, if you will, or it would just be all the pieces would be given and it would be left for dipping. And the idea behind this is is the sweetness of God's redemption amongst the bitterness of slavery. And we should be able to relate to that. There's the sweetness of salvation that we've experienced, but also the bitterness of those who have yet to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Those who may be even close to us that break our hearts. And so even as we rejoice to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. But also we know those who have gone on apart from Jesus Christ have slipped into eternity apart from Jesus Christ. And so we've got a pretty good picture of that once again back in John chapter 13. Again, verse 21, only this time I'll read to 30. 
It says, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most surely I say to you, one of you will betray me. So here we see again, the Lord is troubled. There's a few times in the scriptures that we see he was troubled. He was troubled, he's about to be troubled, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was troubled at Lazarus' death. And as the Lord is troubled, he's troubled here because of the one who is not going to accept him, but who eventually is going to deny him. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread, or that matzah, when I have dipped it. And after having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. When Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he had said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things which we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. But having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. So the picture here is very rich. You've got this mixture of horseradish and basically applesauce. The applesauce would be sweet. The horseradish, well, Jewish tradition dictated that there should be just enough horseradish to bring tears to your eyes. Has horseradish ever called you to, caused you to cry? The other day, my wife got me these rolls, these California rolls that I like, and wasabi comes with it. And I remember the first time, I thought, oh, this stuff's kind of cool, and it's got green paste. I didn't have a clue what it was. I found out, and it brought tears to my eye. I thought it turned my sinuses inside out. And so the idea was there is to be enough to have an effect here because we really see what's going on. And again, Judas, I can just imagine. The Lord, he he takes the bread, he takes a piece of the matzah, he he dips it in the sauce, and he gives it to Judas. And as Judas is walking out that door, I can just see him munching on that bread. And I can see him just experiencing the sensations. Just enough horseradish to bring tears to his eyes, but also there's the sweetness. And and you see the bitterness and the sweetness of what Judas is about to do. Here he goes, and he's about to sell Jesus Christ out. He's He's about to turn on the Lord. Judas is described as the son of perdition. That means the son of waste. The waste that he would spend three years of his life and still deny, with Jesus Christ, and still deny the Lord. And so there's the bitterness of what's to happen to him, and that, well, although he was sorry, he was just a sorry sinner, he would take his life and be lost for all of eternity. So there's that bitterness. It troubled the Lord's heart that he was going to lose one of his. But also there's the sweetness, because this is a ministry that God knew was going to happen. Judas did this in fulfillment of scriptures. And so this denial, this, this, this turning in of the Lord, it, it had to happen. It was part of the plan. There's a sweetness here, but there's a bitterness. And Apostle John in the book of Revelation was told to consume the word of God. It's going to be sweet in his mouth, but it's going to be bitter in his stomach. It's been sweet in our mouths as we speak the word of God and the good things that God has done, but there's a bitterness for those who deny the the Lord Jesus Christ, and deny the truthfulness of his word. We experience both ends of the the stick here. We, We cry out, Lord, come back soon. But there's also the knowledge in the back of our minds that if the Lord would come back today, although we would be gone, 
there would be those who would be left behind, those who would suffer in the tribulation and, and maybe never even receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Next would be that which we are very familiar with is the Passover lamb and then the Afkomen. The Passover lamb, this is that lamb, the lamb that was brought into the city some four days before. This was the lamb that had come in on the triumphal entry. It's when Christ came in, again, we looked at it last night, in those sea of lambs, those lambs that were perfect, that sea of white, that sea of white in, in amongst all of those sheep, all of those sheep that are able to cover sin, there is now the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That takes away the sins of the world to such a degree, it's as if you have never sinned. And so they would go, a leader of the family, he would go and he would get that lamb and he would bring it home and they would spend four days with that lamb. They would develop that relationship with that animal because it's so easy to do. My daughters were, I think they got suckered into this, but some friends say, will you watch our dogs for a while? We, we can't take our dogs with, her, with us. And so my daughter says, yeah, we'll watch them for a period of months or whatever. Well, they fell in love with these dogs right off the bat. And I think these people knew that because they had kids and it was a way to dump the dogs. But you just see how the kids are attached to it. Now, what happens after four days if I made one of them hold it while I slit the thing's throat? And that was the idea, because we're sinners. Something innocent has to die. All pointing towards Jesus Christ. It's that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but the process is an ugly one, but a necessary one. And so you would take it, and you would take it to the temple, and there it would be slaughtered. <clears throat> you would take the carcass home, and then you would eat it in your Passover meal. We looked at the Brook Kedron last night. It was a brook that ran in between the temple and the Mount of Olives, and there was probably close to 200,000 lambs that were being slaughtered at that time, and that river just had a flow with blood. But this is the blood that, well, can only cover sin, but now we have this Lamb of God who is about to take away the sins of the world. And so Jesus, at that time of that dinner, that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is just moments away from being slaughtered. In Matthew chapter 27, it, it speaks of the event in, in detail. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour, from around noon until the ninth, till about three o'clock, this is the Good Friday, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Christ is the only one in which mankind can have hope before a holy God. But there he is. He's upon the cross. Now, don't get me wrong on this. He has never committed sin, nor will he ever commit sin. But what is happening as he is on the cross that would cause darkness to come throughout all of the world? Well, for just a period of time, the world has been turned to hell, if you will. Not literally, but figuratively. Because as sin has been placed upon Christ, that's why he's yelling out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the Father had not forsaken the Son, but there was that sensation. For the very first time in all of past eternity, Christ is experiencing the effects of sin. 
And if Christ would ever sin, if sin was truly placed upon him for a moment, there would be that mindset that there's no hope. And what's a picture of hell? A picture of hell is outer darkness and a godless existence. And that's what we have with Christ. It's outer darkness and my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he's the only one that could deal with it. He's the only one that can handle it. Now, if you take yourself and put yourself upon the cross, what if you were the Passover lamb? You were the Passover lamb. You couldn't take care of yourself, your own sins, let alone anybody else's. If it's you upon that cross, God's forsaken you for all of eternity. And you're in outer darkness for all eternity. We've been given this picture so that we'll understand the magnitude of what is happening. Christ, for the very first time, eternity past, since eternity past, and really eternity future, is taking sin upon himself in order to deal with it. He must die because with sin comes death. It's how we know that, that, that sin was placed upon him. But it's what we're going to be celebrating here in a couple of days. It's the glorious resurrection of Christ that lends towards the proof that he overcame that sin, that he overcame death. If you overcome death, then you overcome sin. Because we're going to be resurrected, we know that we are going to be able in Christ to overcome death, overcome sin. And so you've got a rich picture here. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it for him to drink. The rest said, let him alone and see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That's more than likely when he cried out, it is finished. Verse 51, because we see the results of that. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. That veil, the veil is a separation from the holies and the holy of holies. It's that place that only the priest was able to enter in once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer the blood in order to cleanse it. But now we can all boldly enter into the throne room of God. The idea is is that because of the death of the Lord, that curtain is no longer necessary. It's as if the hand of God tore it in two. Now what is going on here? And is this of God? Well, that last part of verse 51 tells us it is. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. If you would go back to Exodus, we're not going to turn there, but in chapter 19, at the giving of the law was the quaking and the splitting. It was the power of God behind the word of God. And now what you're seeing here is, is an illustration of the power of God behind the fulfillment of God and what God is able to do to fulfill his word. And God has been rendered faithful, and it's through the power of God that sin has been dealt with. With the law was the revelation of sin, but now we see grace coming upon the scene. And because of that, verse 52, speaking of a future event, you'll see in a minute, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and the coming out of the graves after his resurrection, so this didn't happen after his crucifixion, but after his resurrection, because Christ was to be the first fruits, the first one to be resurrected from the dead. But again, these things are lending towards the truthfulness of what is going on on the cross. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this is the Son of God. They saw Christ upon the cross, but it was through the power of God lent towards the truthfulness of what occurred 
upon the cross. And so this Passover lamb, this Passover lamb that they were consuming, the idea is is that as we consume this, as we consume the elements of communion, these things become part of who I am. They become part of my belief. Then there's the afkomen. Afkomen just simply means, in Hebrew, it means dessert. Nothing sweet about it, but it's just the final thing that is consumed here. It's the other half of the middle matzah that was hidden. After it was hidden in the house, remember that middle matzah, it was torn in half, it was wrapped in linen, it was hidden somewhere in the house, they would have the children go and search for it. The child that found it would be rewarded with probably some candy or just some sort of prize. And after it was found, then each member would eat it, and that would conclude the eating portion of the meal. Its fulfillment, its fulfillment is just to keep the kids busy. It's just to entertain the kids. Because you got kids, they sit there for a long time, they get antsy and they get bored, they start hitting one another, and so that's the whole idea, really, behind that. The next is the third and the fourth cup of wine. The third cup of wine is called the cup of redemption. This is the cup that we partake in in the communion meal. In Luke twenty-two twenty. likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, in my blood which will be shed for you. It's after the drinking of this cup that a child would be sent to the front door just, to, just in case, hopefully checking, just in case Elijah happened to show up. Their prayer was is that Elijah would show up at this Passover, he would enter in, he would take that empty seat, he would drink his portion of wine, and he would announce the coming of Messiah. Now, Jesus told his his disciples and the people who were listening that John the Baptist was Elijah who is to come. John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. He was ushering in Jesus Christ at his first coming. But there still is Elijah to come, very possibly the two witnesses that we see in the book of Revelation. But the thing about it is that he is not going to be ushering Messiah in for the purpose of salvation. He's going to be ushering Messiah in for the purpose of judgment. And so we still look forward to that coming day that Elijah is going to come. We're not going to be around in that day, but when that day comes, we know that God is bringing to fulfillment his past prophecies. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The first coming was not a dreadful day. The second coming will be. After that would be the fourth cup. It would be poured. And this is the cup of acceptance or the cup of praise. This is the cup that he said that he would not drink of until they all did so in his heavenly kingdom. Matthew twenty six twenty nine. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so we see the reality of all of these things and we see the fulfillment of them even in the church age that you would just tell the Jew that is partaking of that Passover meal, it came to pass. These things that you guys are longing for, these things that you are waiting for, it came to pass in Jesus Christ. Scriptures tell us that they're blinded to these things as of right now, but there's going to come a time when they will realize the reality of it. But we do. And since we realize the reality of it, we can sing that last song with joy within our hearts. Because at the end, 
there was the closing hymn that was sung, more than likely the last of the Hallel. We're going to look at in just a minute that last one, Psalm 118. But in Matthew 26, verse 30, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they probably sang a group of them, of the Psalms, but they definitely sang this last one. If we could show the, the video with sound. Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let them now that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. They compassed me about, yea, they compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They compass me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Thou hast thrust sore at me that I might fall. For the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song and is become my salvation. The voice or rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doth valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doth valiantly. I will not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. Have chastened me sore, but he had not given me over unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go into them, and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and thou art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvellous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I 
beseech thee, O Lord, my Lord. I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, which hath shown us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, and I will exalt thee. Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Apologize for the sound. We got a new computer. We haven't got it tweaked in yet. But at the ending of that psalm, at the ending of the Hallel, the last Passover ended. The last Passover that had any significance was no more. And now, now it has led to the communion meal. This meal that the Lord has given us to partake in so that we would remember. That we would remember what occurred on Calvary so long ago that we would understand how this would reverberate throughout the course of history, all the way through to the day of our salvation, but even and on, however long it is that the Lord tarries, that all who would realize the, the magnitude of their sinful nature would submit themselves and humble themselves before a mighty God. And so as you are celebrating this communion meal, you are standing before a holy God, you're standing before a holy God and you're saying, I recognize that it was necessary for me to understand who my God is, that Christ needed to come. He needed to come in the flesh. That you're standing before a holy God and as you hold that juice in your hand, you're reminded that it was so necessary because I'm a sinner that Christ died for me. Yet while we are still sinners, Christ died. And again, it just speaks of the magnitude of the grace of God and that we would truly celebrate this meal, that this Friday that seems so tragic would instead be so good, so good, and that it resulted in the salvation of God's people and eternity forever in his presence. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now keep in mind, the thanks that he was given is that his body was going to be broken. He's thanking the Father for that plan because he understands that this, this is so necessary so that man would know God. Verse 25, In the same manner, in a spirit of thanks, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The new covenant, the old covenant, was all about the blood of lambs and goats and bulls that could never do away with the sins of mankind. There was a covering, but never an eradication of it. This new covenant is the blood of the Lamb of God, who again, who takes away the sins of the world. That's that blood that has washed us clean, or the sacrificial death of our Lord and Savior who paid the price for our sins. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, there is what happened in the past. It's what's going on in the present. <clears throat> but it also speaks of a glorious future that we have because of what occurred that day. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let each eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so we need to examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves to know that we are in the faith, so that we know that we have been covered by the blood of the Lamb that we have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior just simply through faith, through the hearing of the Word of God and the giving of ourselves. That we would examine ourselves just simply to know that, well, Lord, is there something that I have against a brother or sister that I I haven't released? Is there some sin that I've been harboring, some secret sin that nobody knows, but I know you know and I know, and and my conscience, it's vexed my conscience? Allow yourself to repent here tonight. Allow yourself to receive of the cleansing that comes, the coming before the Lord and just repenting of your sins, repenting of your wrongdoing, and just receive all the forgiveness that God has for you. Allow it to wash over you in this place tonight. This communion meal will only be as real as you make it through your faith in what Christ has said. And Christ has commanded us to partake of this as we do. Just pray that we would be open to receiving what it is that he has to offer. I'm going to pray. We're going to have a moment of silence, just a silence that you would contemplate these things. The worship team is going to come up, and when they start playing a song, come on up. When they start leading us in worship, come on up and serve yourself. Hold on to the communion elements, and we'll partake together. Father, we do lift up this time to you, and we just pray, Father, that you would reveal ourselves to ourselves. That, Father, we would grasp on to the knowledge of who we are. And, Father, as we dig deep within ourselves, I pray, Father, that you would reveal whatever it is that may need to be revealed so that we would not partake of this meal in an unworthy manner. And so, Father, I just commit this time to the people who are sitting here, that you would meet them in a very personal way, that you would meet them, Lord, in the midst of our sins, in the midst of our failures, but most of all, Father, in the midst of our faith who has overcome all of these things. And so once again, I just pray as we take this quiet time that you would take this time, Lord, that you would truly commune with us.